Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in to this first program here um, that we are providing to Counterpunch subscribers. And uh, before we get into the program, before I introduce my guest, um, I just want to remind people that if you are a subscriber to Counterpunch, you're obviously you're getting this episode for free, and um, we want to thank you, of course, for your continued support, uh, support for the magazine, support on the website, spreading the word about a truly independent outlet for independent journalism. I think this is critical. Now, if you have downloaded this program and you are not a subscriber to the magazine, I would urge you to strongly consider it because, uh, again, Counterpunch is one of the few, if not the only, uh, outlet for what I would consider truly independent uh, political analysis, economic analysis, social and cultural criticism that uh, kind of exists outside of what we might call the controlled media media system. And um, I mean, if you look around you, I, I, I defy anybody to really point to uh, a better outlet for truly independent journalism. So um, if you're downloading this episode, truly strongly consider becoming a subscriber and a supporter of Counterpunch. Um, there's so many good contributors, and I'm really pleased and honored to be able to speak with one of those contributors today, Mike Whitney, who is a regular columnist with Counterpunch. Uh, you can find his articles every issue. You can find his stuff um Gosh, it seems almost every day on the website. So um, without further ado, I want to introduce Mike Whitney to Counterpunch Radio. Mike, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Eric. Absolutely. And um, I'm really happy to be be able to talk to you right now, not only because, you know, I think it's a, uh, an excellent opportunity to sort of kick off this show and provide uh, a new outlet, a, a new medium for our supporters at Counterpunch to really kind of engage with a lot of the material outside of just the magazine and the website. So I'm happy to have you on for that reason. But I'm also equally happy to have you on because... Gosh, it just seems that so much is happening in the world right now, and I, I follow your stuff really, you know, on an everyday basis, and you're all over the place, you know, you're really following just about everything happening in the world, so, I mean, without further ado, why don't, why don't we get into some of that important stuff? Sounds um, great. So in the in the new in the new issue of Counterpunch, you have uh, you have an article that's really dealing with uh, the Fed and U.S. economic situation, interest rates, a lot of different issues. And um, I want to start off by asking you just a really broad question: um, What is it that that drove you to focus on that in this current issue, and why do you think that this is really important for people to follow? Because it seems like this is one of those issues that really is not on a lot of people's radar. So what's so important about the situation with the Fed and interest rates right now? Well, I think the whole thing is, uh, you know, probably like yourself, as I find myself very stretched in these days because, you know, I've never known a period when the United States has had so many balls in the air at one time. There's just so many hot spots. But I think we have to stay focused on the economy because uh, actually these issues of, uh, you know, expanding in Ukraine and and uh, the Middle East and these different, uh, you know, strategic priorities are all related to this new economic paradigm that is, you know, emerging in, uh, among the BRICS and the, uh, you know, the uh, Shanghai uh, organization. And uh, so I think that essentially we're talking about uh, how the U.S. economy is going to do in the future and whether it's going to be the dominant economy in the world, which uh, doesn't look likely at all. So. 
the policies that we are implementing now are going to have a, a serious effect on that. And, uh, you know, interest rates are the, you know, barometer for the health of the economy. And we've had interest rates at zero for six years now. And the economy really hasn't responded. We're still sputtering along at about uh, 2%, 2.2%. And uh, there are people who now argue, argue that we're actually in a recession. And uh, the evidence for that is pretty uh, compelling, although it's not, you know, usually uh, trotted out on the uh, mainstream media. But uh, <clears throat> so basically we have the quantitative easing and the low interest rates, which are trying to get the economy up and running again. And uh, there's been no response. And so, you know, if we take a more critical view about uh, quantitative easing, we, we see that basically it's kind of a restructuring of the economy, that uh, basically even when the economy is flat on its back, the uh, Federal Reserve is buying assets at a rate that increase the, uh, the aggregate value of other financial assets. So that pushes up the, the uh, value of stocks. Mm -hmm. And so the only people who are benefiting from that are the 10% of the people in the country who own stocks. And meanwhile, the rest of the country is just kind of sputtering along at half speed. So um, I don't yeah. know... Do you, do you have anything you'd add to yeah, that? Yeah, I would. Well, I mean, I totally agree, of course. And I want to just kind of throw in another another element to that. I, I agree with all of that. And I would just add that that low interest rate is really kind of, it's no longer sort of the, the, the benefit, let's call it, that it once was when that was introduced after 2008. It's almost as if that's now a requirement for the quote-unquote health of the current economy. So you have banks, you have other uh, large institutions that really uh, absolutely require this 0% or near 0% interest rate in order for them to continue doing business. And so it seems like there's going to be a lot of uh, shockwaves from any increase in interest rates because it's almost like, you know, addiction to drugs or something. The longer that you're using it, the less and less return you're getting out of it and the more and more dependency you have on it. Well, if you have, if you have your uh, GDP flatlining at about, flatlining at about 2% per year, you know that the um, the primary reason why you're using low interest rates to be stimulative, well, it's not working. So you have to try something else. And what's so odd about this uh, situation now is that the people, the economists who are basically determining the policies, are uh, acting as though they have forgotten how to stimulate an economy. Mm -hmm. And, of course, at the same time, they champion the $800 billion uh, fiscal Obama fiscal stimulus that they had originally, which went straight into the economy and uh, produced some results as far as reducing, as, as far as increasing activity, reducing unemployment, and, you know, creating greater growth. Uh, now they're saying that we're just going to have the monetarist approach, which is lowering rates and, and buying financial assets, and that's going to have the same sort of stimulative effect. Well, it hasn't worked at all. And what has happened is that the inequality in the United States has expanded quite dramatically. So the fact that they're all, and I'm talking about, you know, the ECB, the European Central Bank, the, uh, the Bank of England, the uh, Bank of Japan, all of these various central banks are operating in coordination with the same given policy, completely abandoning the policies, uh, the Keynesian policies that have been used for the last 60 or 70 years that were effective, tells me that there's some sort of cartel at work and that this actually is a structural readjustment program, which is uh, adjustment program, which is 
uh, focus mainly on shifting more wealth from working people to the people at the top of the uh, economic food chain. And that, in fact, is what's happening by all the uh, statistical evidence we have. Well, that's that's exactly right. And that shifting that shifting of the burden of the economy, really, the sh- it's a shifting of wealth on the one hand. It's also a shifting of the burden of who's supposed to pay for all of these for all of these things. And so, I mean, uh, that broadly speaking is what we call austerity. I know that um, a few years back I interviewed uh, Yanis Varoufakis, who's now the finance minister in Greece. And when I was talking to him back then, I guess this was 2012, 2013, he was talking about precisely that in Greece, that what was imposed on Greece was a program in which those who caused the economic crisis, those large banks and the other institutions in Greece, that they had shifted the burden of that depression onto the working class and the poor, while at the same time siphoning off that bailout money that, uh, you know, the memorandum of understanding and all of that. Now, what you're saying, if I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, is that really we can almost look at that as happening on a global scale now. Absolutely, it's happening on a global scale, and I think Varoufakis uh, provides a really good illustration of uh, how futile it is to fight against this, because here Varoufakis came in with tremendous bona fides as far as his expertise in the uh, economic field, and he has just ever so slightly tried to nudge the ECB, the Troika, the uh, European Commission, and these different institutions in Europe uh, to the left, so that they would at least reduce the austerity. He wasn't talking about leaving the uh, the Eurozone. He was just talking about reducing it to the extent where, you know, uh, Greece can, the economy can get its feet on the ground and, and start up again. Because essentially what you had in Greece, and it's a helpful uh, example, uh, you have a prescription of austerity, a prescription for an economic remedy for Greece, that was exacerbating the problem and making it worse every year. So say you go to the doctor and he gives you medicine, and every time you take the medication, you end up uh, throwing up or having uh, you know severe cramps or something like that. And as you take more and more of it, the cramps and uh, throwing up get more severe. Well, eventually you figure out that it's the medicine that's doing that. This is the case with Greece, where the uh, debt-to-GDP ratio every year in the last five years has widened significantly. So they are digging, digging a deeper and deeper hole. Varoufakis comes along and says, look, we can meet some of your uh, some of your requirements, but we have to have a solution that actually gets us out of the problem we're in. And where I feel he was uh, sort of naive, or exceptionally naive, is thinking that the people who run the Eurozone, this uh, cartel of uh, bankers and businessmen and corporatists, etc., didn't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. that he could nudge them in a, in a direction that was corrective, when in fact, these guys know exactly what they're doing. They're basically looting the country to whatever extreme extent they can, and uh, that is the, that's the game plan, and that's the, that's the end game for them. So uh, I think he was, he's been extremely naive in that regard, because uh, these people are not persuadable. Yeah. And, you know, I, I totally agree with you in the sense that they're not persuadable. It's sort of an ideological sort of um, 
uh, dogmatism or orthodoxy that they that they espouse. On the other hand, I, I've I've also sort of had a maybe I guess slightly more conspiratorial outlook on it and wondering whether or not uh, Varoufakis was supposed to be the good cop in the you know in the equation and maybe uh, Tsipras and Syriza had a pretty good idea that they weren't going to budge as far as their you know commitment to austerity and commitment to this sort of neoliberal I guess shock therapy <laughs> sort of model for Greece and so. Uh, it could be that they're kind of playing their cards uh, close to the close to the vest in that regard, and trying to open ties with Russia, open ties with China, and create these alternative channels, while at the same time trying to, you know, not disingenuously deal with the troika. Well, uh, I would agree with that, except that they are digging into their own. You know, they're going through their public funds at a rate that is just astronomical, and uh, if they're Actually, well, actually, to begin with, there were no negotiations. I mean, if you follow this closely, the uh, Troika side, which is the ECB, the uh, European Commission, and the Eurogroup, uh, never moved, or in the, the IMF, never moved on any of their uh, positions. Exactly. Uh, and they never, there never were any negotiations or compromises of any kind. All the compromises come from Greece's side. So now they've eaten through the, basically, they're eating their seed corn and uh, grief, and they're going to be in a terrible position if they are forced to leave. So they don't really have any sort of preparation for that. So it makes me think that, uh, wonder about if there is really a conspiracy afoot, because what they should be doing is building a national consensus to leave so that the people at least are aware of what's going on. And that would come in the form of a referendum or something. Oh, yeah. But uh, they have to get off a snipe. And Russia denied today, I think maybe if you saw RT today, they denied that they are going to offer them the $5 billion. There's going to be some sort of concession or some sort of contract for uh, exporting oil or setting up pipelines to Greece, but uh, they're not going to get the money in the short term, and I'm not sure it would help them anyway. Oh, I totally uh, agree. I, I I totally agree. I'm not I'm not suggesting that that's necessarily a viable alternative for Greece. I'm just saying that um, I just I wonder to what extent um, Greece's uh, strategy or Syriza's strategy going into all of this was 100 percent naive, or whether they thought that they could try to play both sides. I think it's unclear, but I totally agree yeah. with you that uh, the alternative now is mm. there is no alternative. There really is only one course of action they could take, and that is an exit out of the euro in some fashion and uh, finding a way to sort of cushion that landing as much as they can. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but, you know, it's been, it's been a, a painful example for the rest of the countries that are struggling too, like Italy, Spain, Portugal, Ireland, etc., to see to what extent... Uh, I mean, it, the Troika, uh, there's been no sense of solidarity or cooperation at all. Uh, they have the Maastricht rule... And it's basically uh, the the red, the red regime that they're imposing on these people. They're absolutely inflexible about the neoliberalism that they're pushing down these people's throat. So what is the message that these other leaders in these other countries get? Is that this is not really a country. This is not really uh, shared values and uh, shared pain, et cetera, et cetera. It's basically uh, a dictatorship of capital where if you stand, step out of line or if you struggle a few years, you're going to be uh, penalized severely. So um, they've never conceived of any sort of program. Well, for example, in, in, in the five years since the crisis struck, uh, name one incident when the Troika uh, 
decided collectively to issue any sort of fiscal stimulus to to help these countries get out of the situation they're in. It's yeah, exactly. never happened. Exactly. So there's never been any pathway for working people to uh, achieve a uh, a more prosperous society where there's more shared wealth in the in the process, you know. The only thing they've been uh, faced is, you know, intensive, you know, growing, uh, you know, hot posterity and hardship and uh, et, et cetera. So, I mean, there's nothing in it for them. That's exactly right. Um, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Now, I want to bring us back to the U.S. and the U.S. economic situation because I do think that while they're, of course, connected, I think that there are certain uh, there, there are certain elements with regard to the situation in the U.S. that I think are unique. Um, one of those, and this is partially at least because in comparison to Europe, the U.S. Uh, working class has so many fewer protections and so much less bargaining power than it does in a much more unionized uh, uh, Europe with its tradition of social welfare. Um, in the U.S., we're seeing this continued, what I would call a conversion of the economy. And uh, really, it's it's moved away even more in recent years from what traditionally had been a high-wage economy, a high-wage, high-income economy to a low wage economy and uh, one of those things that I think I always am looking at is these employment numbers, right? The employment numbers come out and, you know, the mainstream media, the corporate media, the propagandists, they talk about, well, let's draw all of these conclusions from the unemployment rate. Well, the unemployment rate's down to 5.5%. Obama's happy. Everything is humming along nicely. But if you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, if you look at some of the closer indices, you begin to see that actually a lot of the jobs that have been eliminated were high-wage jobs jobs and full-time employment, and those that have been added are low-wage part-time employment. And so while the total aggregate numbers are looking okay, if the qualitative analysis, I think, is quite dire. So can you give me your uh, sort of take on that issue and how that plays into this sort of the propaganda that we hear about the U.S. economy? No, you're exactly right. I mean, uh, if your participation rate in the uh, uh, as far as employment decreases, uh, more than the percentage of people working actually increases. You know, so so your percentage of people working is 5.5%, but there's actually fewer people working because they've fallen off the rolls entirely. Then you have less people working, and we do have less people working. We have less people working going back to, like, I believe it's 1999. Mm -hmm. So if you have less people working, and two-thirds of the jobs that were gained after the crisis are low-paying food service or working in hospitals or something like that, these people are making half as much, then you have half as much money going into the economy, right? Exactly. With fewer people paying into the economy. Well, if, if spending money creates activity and activity creates growth, then you're obviously going to have less growth if you have less people. So what they should be concerned with is people's wages, not simply the number of people working, even though that number is less than it was. So they're perfectly aware that these uh, these numbers are they're not entirely fake, but they don't reflect the real condition of the economy. You know, I mean, if you're making half as much as you did, you know, five years ago, then your ability to spend in the economy and create activity in the economy and create growth in the economy is considerably less. It's, it's you know, reduced by a half. So... This is the condition of the economy. So you have people like Krugman, Paul Krugman from, um, you know, uh, Princeton and uh, Lawrence Summers 
and uh, these big-wig neoliberal economists who are saying, well, it's uh, you know, secular stagnation, which is a fancy word to say that basically we have to continue with the same policies that we are today. It's just that they, uh, they're just trying to hoodwink the public into believing that we have to keep funneling more money into financial assets and making the ultra-uber-rich even richer yeah. uh, to counter this situation, which is very easy to counter. You just increase wages. I mean, that's not simple. Uh, you know, I mean, if you could reestablish some way to uh, strengthen unions or something like that, but at least recognizing what the essential problem is, it's not stagnation. It's that people don't have enough money to spend in the economy. So the elite economists are setting up a way to perpetuate the same system. That's, that's what right. Krugman's doing. I mean, he, he gets into people's heads on the left, and they think, oh, well, he's very reasonable. He talks about this and that. But they don't realize the subtle points in which he tries to deceive people and move them in the direction of elites. And that's, that's how the that's how the uh, New York Times plays the game. They have people on the left side of the issue and the right side of the issue, and they basically ascribe to the same philosophy. I mean, you're not going to be Dean Baker or someone like that or uh, Galbraith and get a spot in the New York Times. You have to be a player within that field of thinking. So, yeah, exactly. The uh, neoliberal, the neoliberal consensus, whether it comes in the in a liberal form or in a conservative form, you have to be part of that consensus. And um, one of the things that I think you're getting at, and I'm just sort of reiterating your point in slightly different terms, is this delineation that w that needs to be made between what we could maybe call the financialized economy and the real economy, right? So the difference between what the stock market might be doing and what wages are doing. And I think that this distinction is almost never made in mainstream economic analysis, whether it comes from the left or the right. And that distinction, I think, is critical for people to understand if they want to understand really the, 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 the true situation in the economy. So on the one hand, you see a report like 5.5% unemployment holding steady from February and March. On the other hand, you look at the numbers, manufacturing numbers are down, durable goods numbers are down. A lot of the uh, you know manufacturing exports because of the stronger dollar, I mean, all of these things are down and these are negative indicators that don't make it in to the mainstream analysis so maybe you could talk a little bit about this de this delineation between the financialized economy and the real economy and why that's important well let me let me uh, you know cite one example that I think is the most striking and that is that like I said before the economy since the uh, end of the recession in uh, 2009 has been sputtering along at roughly two percent. Uh, per year, so it's hardly growing at all. Not enough to add enough jobs to really uh, have a meaningful impact on growth. So this is the weakest uh, end of a reset or uh, growth period since the end of World War II. But the difference between that and the stock market, which is nearly tripled in the same amount of time, is is shocking because. People think there's some connection between the, the value of stocks and what's happening in the real economy, and, and certainly there should be. But this uh, paper shuffling has has been uh, so you know extremely supercharged by the different uh, modes of leveraging uh, assets that there's a complete disconnect there. So now you know the paper shuffling is completely disconnected from it. I mean, for example, at at zero when you have a system and you call it capitalism, and it basically depends on being able to get a certain amount of uh, money return on your investment, uh, 
you know, according to whatever amount of risk exposure you have. And then you say, well, capital no longer has any value because we're going to keep it at zero for five years. And what that, in fact, does is allows the people, the speculators and the high rollers, like the bankers have said, to roll over their big debt pile over and over without any cost to themselves. And these guys have a, a significant debt pile. But right now, the, the uh, Federal Reserve knows that all these gaming procedures are actually the things that are keeping you know, stocks in the stratosphere. Yeah. Like uh, the biggest, the biggest uh, you know, one area that has so much impact on pushing stocks higher is uh, stock buybacks. And these, country, these companies that are doing terribly as far as their growth and their earnings are still taking huge amounts of money, borrowing it at zero or, or close to zero, and plumping it back into their stocks, pushing the stock price up higher, pushing the markets up higher. So you can see how, you know, the stock, the, the Federal Reserve can see that uh, the things, the, the techniques and the methods, the means that are pushing up stocks are not productive for the overall economy. It's completely detached from the condition of the economy because buying your stock back does not add to productivity, does not add to aggregate demand, doesn't add anything beneficial for the real economy. All it does is it just jolts the stock up higher. So, uh, and they know that that's what they're dealing with, but now they, they're afraid to, that the bubble has gotten bigger than any bubble in history, that if they even raise interest rates by a minuscule uh, 25 basis points, that that's going to send the markets into a tailspin. Yeah. So that's they have not figured out how to remedy this. It's basically, they painted themselves into a corner, and they don't know how to how to get out. And of course, when the economy, when the markets crash, that will have a severe effect or impact on the real economy because those debts once again will be transferred to working people. So it'll dig the hole even a little bit deeper. I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. Um, so there's a lot more to unpack from this issue, uh, you know, th this this entire topic. Um, I would urge people to check out your article in the in the most recent issue of Counterpunch magazine. Uh, let's take a break. And on the other side of the break, I want to continue talking about economic issues. But I want to look to Eastern Europe and specifically to Ukraine, because I think that there's so much to understand there and how that actually fits into a larger political puzzle. So on the other side of the break. We'll continue my conversation with Mike Whitney. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. Thanks so much. We'll be right back.
And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Mike Whitney, and uh, we just talked a lot about uh, economic issues pertaining to the U.S., and we even touched a bit on the situation in Europe and, and, and globally, but... Uh, now I want to focus in, zero in a little bit on uh, Ukraine and on Russia, because I think that if you uh, approach that issue, which of course has been dominating headlines for more than a year now, if you approach that issue from an economic standpoint, I think a lot of the uh, political conflicts become a little bit more easy to decipher. So, uh, you know, Mike, I know you're, I know you follow this closely, and you know the EU just approved uh, what I guess is now the third package of bailout package for Ukraine. Uh, this time totaling 1.8 billion euros with 600 million euros to be delivered, I guess, in the in the coming months by the summertime. Uh, so in order to get that money, Kiev is now signing a memorandum of understanding, which, of course, should set off alarm bells for anyone who knows what the situation in Greece is. This means shock therapy. This means a whole slew of problems that are going to emerge. So uh, what's your general analysis of the economic situation in Ukraine and what you see moving forward? Well, the country is in complete economic collapse. I've seen it compared to the poorest countries in Africa now. And, uh, you know, their industrial base in the east has been completely shattered, and they're uh, pounding away at it even as we speak. Uh, but, you know, it's it's just puzzling why they keep how these people could be so in control that Washington could control what Europe is doing to this extent to uh, to be feeding money into a country with no economic prospects at all. I mean, uh, for one thing, the IMF is uh, loaning, a, a, I think, what is it, up to $40 billion eventually, and uh, in violation of its own uh, you know, con- uh, contract, which is basically that you're not supposed to uh, provide uh, loans to any country that's in a state of war at the time. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, they're just stretching all the rules so they can keep this puppet government alive and uh, pump more money into the military. And meanwhile, the economy is crashing around them. And, uh, you know, basically they're going to be privatizing everything, including the pipelines uh, extending from Russia into Europe and anything that's of any value. And uh, I'm not sure how it's going to work. And maybe that's why militarily they're moving so swiftly because they realize that it's such a basket case economically that it's just they're not going to be able to hold the whole thing together. Uh, but uh, I do, you know, just on a sideline, you know, tomorrow is April 20th, and uh, knowing that, uh, you know, the Nazi contingent, which has just been recognized by the government there, uh, is uh, so powerful and has so much impact in the government that uh, tomorrow is Hitler's birthday, and I've heard things on the Internet that they expect that the uh, there will be a spring offensive, uh, perhaps led, uh, you know, beginning and in, intensifying on that day, so... I'm just curious about that, but uh, yeah, about their economy over there. Yeah, I mean, look, the situation is a dire one. You know, I I, I follow this closely as well, and. Um, you have two, I think you have two different things that you need to be looking at. On the one hand, everything that you're saying is true, and I agree with from a macro perspective, but we also shouldn't forget a micro perspective in Ukraine, because if you look at a lot of the working class people, and let's just leave aside for now Donetsk and Lugansk, which is uh, in many ways really the industrial heartland, the industrial base of that country, but leaving that aside, even just municipal workers and state workers and ordinary folks in Kiev or in you know the western portion of 
of Ukraine, which is even worse. Those people are not getting paid quite often. You see uh, uh, spikes in uh, prices for staple foods. You see tr- runaway inflation, a collapsing economy, all, uh, uh, rather a collapsing currency. All of these things happening simultaneously to me means that you have a political and economic instability precisely in the place that's supposed to be marshalling support for a war. Now, that to me is a recipe for uh, the collapse of a government. That is the recipe for the complete unraveling of the social fabric. I think that the problems in Ukraine are so deeply institutional now that these economic um, you know, indicators are sort of the straw that's going to break the camel's back. Well, how do you see this thing developing going forward? That's kind of uh, uh, who's got the, uh, you know, the crystal ball that can tell what's going to happen in the near term. I mean, uh, it seems to me like they have to expedite their war on the east to achieve any of the goals that they they hope to. But the uh, the army is so deeply demoralized at, at this point. And uh, keep in mind that just two days ago, what was it? Uh, 299 troops from the uh, 173rd uh, Airborne Division touched down in Kiev, and they're going to start from the United States, and they're going to start training uh, troops in the Ukrainian army. So uh, not only being in violation of the the Minsk Treaty, this looks to me like the United States is behind the uh, steady escalation of fighting between, uh, you know, between the Ukrainian army and the people in the East. Exactly. uh, I'm just wondering, uh, Putin has already put himself on record saying that he is not going to allow the East to be trounced and just reduced to rubble. So I hope, I, I presume that that means that uh, the United States wants to escalate this conflict to the point where they feel like they can draw Russia into the battle and therefore, you know, um, you know, discredit him in the eyes of the people of Europe. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely correct. And I think that um, all of that also, there's, there's um, let's call it other machinations in the background as well. Because if you follow some of the um, less publicized aspects of what's happening in Ukraine right now, there was recently an article from the Washington Post talking about the introduction of genetically modified crops by Monsanto, by a number of these big agri-corporations, which have for decades wanted to get their hands on that. That Ukrainian black earth, that Ukrainian heartland, which is, you know, Ukraine has often talked about itself as a potential breadbasket for Europe. Well, this is, I think, accelerating as well. So on the one hand, you have this this war that's accelerating in the east. On the other hand, you have an acceleration of the exploitation of Ukrainian natural resources. And not just in terms of agriculture, you also have Chevron and, and I think uh, uh, Exxon and uh, Mobile and maybe one or two others who are wanting to get into the fracking and the shale game there and some of the other extractive industries and so there's a lot of economic exploitation happening just below the surface while the economy is collapsing and the east is being reduced to rubble you know the most interesting that's that's very interesting but the most interesting sideline story i think to the what's going on in ukraine right now for me personally is the uh uh, negotiations and the uh nuclear uh, agreement between Iran and the P5 plus 1, whatever it is. And uh, to me, I see that. W- why is there some progress in these negotiations now? And I I see the progress as being coordinated with what's going on in Ukraine. And the reason this interests me, because I see a definite split 
between elites who are operating behind the scenes and the U.S. policy establishment. I think on the one hand, you have the Brzezinski crowd, which is Obama is part of that, although you wouldn't include Kerry. You wouldn't include the State Department. And then you have the McCain uh, uh, neocon faction that is fighting tooth and nail to avoid any sort of agreement with Iran. So let me just let's just talk about this for one second. It seems to me that the Brzezinski faction believes that the pivot to Asia surrounding Russia, uh, perhaps dismantling or dismembering Russia, and projecting U.S. power into Asia to control the growth of China is primary to to maintaining our global control and superpower status, whereas the other faction is much more tied to the Likud and tied to the Israeli vision of establishing Middle East hegemony. And that is the faction that does not want to let up pressure on Iran at all. So I think you have a real, I, I think that uh, by loosening the ties on Iran, what they hope to, you know, I've been reading some, some other uh, material on the, you know, Pepe Escobar follows this pipeline of stand mm-hmm. uh, theory that, that they hope to allow Iran to st- start providing natural gas to Europe in replacement of Russian gas. So, okay, here are the Europeans, and they're getting very nervous because the United States is making every effort to separate the continents, Asia, from uh, Europe, and undermine uh, Russia's uh, economic strength. But at the t- same time, you know, the Europeans need an alternative. Now, the uh, the Syrian thing is not going well, and it looks like uh, Israel, the big, great uh, gas field they have off uh, the coast of Gaza, yeah. you know, 60% of that is going to go to Israel. So where's the gas going to come from to maintain the economy in uh, the EU? Well, now I think that the, the breakthrough and the uh, discussions at Luzan indicate that you know they're probably going to loosen uh, the sanctions enough so that Iran can start piping uh, natural gas to Europe. And, and that is the only way, because the Azerbaijan and those fields are not big enough to supply uh, Europe. That's and right. Iran is the only the only game out there. So I think that's what they're planning, especially yeah. since uh, Syria is not going as well. I so, agree with you, Mike. You know, I mean, this is kind of a loose connection, but you can see how, you know, geopolitically, the uh, Brzezinski crowd is prioritizing the war on Russia as being the most important policy, uh, part of our foreign policy right to date, whereas the neocon faction is saying, no, we, the Middle East is always going to be more important. So. I, I agree with that actually uh, s- significantly, um, but I would throw in a couple of other wild cards here, some counter moves that have happened that I, I – well, let me put it this way. I think that there are very um, forward-thinking strategists and strategic planners in Russia and in China and uh, throughout the world who would agree with you on this global geopolitical game, and there are counter moves that are happening right now. So on the one hand, I think that there are definitely people in China and people in Russia who see the uh, P5 plus one and the and the negotiated settlement with Iran as being strategically significant for the importation of energy into Europe. And so the counter move, if you followed the news this past week, is that China has now come in to guarantee, financially guarantee, the Iran-Pakistan pipeline, which has been on the table now for two decades. But it has fallen apart because of terrorism, because of financing issues, 
issues because of uh, conflicts between Iran and Pakistan and a whole slew of issues. Now, all of a sudden, right when P5 plus one happens and the prospect of Iranian gas going west, here comes China to finance the Iran-Pakistan pipeline. Seems to me more than just a coincidence. Wow, you know what? It seems like we're on the same page. And, and something else to add to that is not only that uh, that uh, Khomeini said that all sanctions would have to be lifted on the day that they uh, uh, made the final agreement on the intrusive kind of uh, nuclear uh, inspection regime, but at, by the same token, they said they uh, issued a statement saying that they were going to join Russia and China in this kind of de facto uh, opposition to NATO expansion. Yep. I mean, that's not going to be well received in Washington, you know. So, and, I mean, what what is the incentive for Obama to sit down and, and negotiate with these guys when they're telling him at the same point that we're going to checkmate you in Europe? So, uh, this, I mean, it's really... <laughs> This is why I haven't been devoting as much time to the economy, because the geopolitical situation right now is as unstable but as interesting as I can ever remember. Yeah, you're telling me. And and let's not forget also, <laughs> and I know that um, um, in in a little while we're going to we're going to continue this conversation. Um, but I do want to touch on the fact also two things uh, this past week and we're recording here on what is this, April 18th, but this past week I published an article about this, uh, the executive order signed by President Putin to basically lift the ban on supplying the S-300 missile system to Iran. Now, while that doesn't mean that Russia's supplying it immediately, what that does say is that there is now a de facto military alliance that is developing, if at only the early stages, between Russia and Iran. Couple that with the fact that Iran has expressed interest repeatedly in uh, becoming a member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Couple that with the fact that both Iran and Pakistan have also expressed interest in joining the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And so what you're seeing developing is essentially a de facto counterweight to NATO and to the Western imperial system that we've, you know, come to come to understand as dominating the global order. And I think that this is what we're really talking about when we use this phrase multipolarity and a dispersion of power in the world. This is really developing and the United States and and the West in general is really, I think, desperate to block that. And I think that that is the framework through which we can understand a lot of these geopolitical moves. Well, you know, uh, let's face it. Putin has outplayed all of these guys. The smartest guys in our policy establishment have been outplayed just by his uh, restraint and his not jumping in where, where it's unnecessary. And you remember the days when all the hotheads were saying, you know, Putin's got to get involved. He's got to slap these guys, you know, send the tanks to Kiev and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Had he done that, he wouldn't have played the long game. And the long game for him are these set of critical alliances, pr primarily Beijing. You know, he now, I think before he does any move in Ukraine, I think he consults a number of different capitals to think to, uh, have them decide uh, whether there's consensus on whether this is a reasonable approach or not. And this is built consensus around him. I mean, he is really holding the whole thing together. But this thing about uh, Iran and they, their membership, perspective, perspective membership in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization could come up as early as this summer. Yep. Now, if they throw into that organization, along with the BRICS, along with the, uh, the uh, Asian infrastructure and uh, investment bank, 
all of these institutions in the West that are being replaced or challenged, uh, you have a serious, serious problem from uh, the United States point of view. And, uh, and it, it just looks to me like Eurasian uh, integration is a train that already left the station, that this is something that's already there and it's accelerating because of the United States pressure and the, the poor uh, strategic thinking of the people in Washington, because they are forcing this to happen. I don't think that bank, which challenges the IMF, the institution that has done so much for preserving U.S. hegemony in the last 50 years, uh, would have come about had the United States not re- behaved so belligerently in the South China Sea and the uh, and in Ukraine, because they're just forcing their hands. So we're moving very quickly away from the reserve currency status. And once you do that, then you basically have to pay your own bills. And as you know, that's something the United States is not prepared to do. It's not capable of doing. That's exactly right. Um, so why don't we leave it there for now? And um, we're going to come right back and we're going to have part two of this conversation. And so listeners, if you are uh, a Counterpunch subscriber, you'll of course get part two as part of your subscription. Uh, if you've downloaded this episode, please do consider, of course, downloading part two of my conversation with Mike Whitney. Uh, we're going to be talking a lot more about some of these issues, some of the geopolitics. Uh, tune in for uh, partially at least a conversation about the situation in Yemen. We want to talk about the expansion of ISIS and what we can take from that. So a lot more to discuss with Mike Whitney. Uh, thanks so much for listening to part one of this conversation here on Counterpunch Radio. And of course, we will speak to you very soon. 